we've seen Nimrod, so we might as well check out some more giants because they are certainly in our way. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we are slow walking and have been slow walking for quite a while now, have been slow walking through Dante's Inferno, passage by passage. By the way, if you were listening to this in real time, it has been exactly two years since this podcast started. 194 episodes, a crazy changes in my own life, books published in my other life as a cookbook author, book groups led, my father has passed away. So much has happened in these two years, and yet we're still walking. How is this possible? We are at lines 82 through 111 of Canto 31. If you'd like to read this English translation, you can find it on my website, markscarbro.com. You can read along and you can even drop a comment there. There are great comments from people disagreeing with me. Thank you so much for the time it takes you to do that. That is just brilliant. And it's wonderful because it's nice to hear back and it's nice to hear even disagreements back. I appreciate it. So let's get to it. Canto 31, lines 82 through 111. So we went quite a ways along our journey, having now turned to the left. About a crossbow shot farther on, we found the next one, a little more bestial and grandiose. I don't know what sort of master craftsman did this to him, nor can I say, but he was bound with his right arm behind him and his left out in front by a chain that held him tight around his neck, then went around the exposed part of him for five circles. This prideful one hoped to test out his strength against Jove on high, my guide said. So he's got his reward. Ephialtes is his name. He dared grand feats when the giants struck fear into the gods. The arms he moved back then can't be moved at all now. Then I to him, if it's permissible, I'd like to see the mammoth Briarius to experience him with my own eyes. At which he replied, You'll see Antaeus pretty close by. He speaks. He isn't bound. He'll set us down on the very foundations of all that's sinful. The one you wish to see, he's much farther on and is bound up and formed just like this one here, except that his face looks even more ferocious. Never has a rugged earthquake made a tower shake so hard as Ephialtes shook himself all of the sudden. I've never feared death more than at that moment. The fear itself would have done me in, except I could still see his chains. We're going to break it right there when Ephialtes shakes himself so much. <laughs> Why? Oh, that's a big question. There are several big questions in this passage. They include theological conundrums and then the question of who these three figures are who are called out in this passage, these three giants. Let's take a look at the passage from the top. It starts, so we went quite a ways along our journey, having now turned to the left. Oh, there's our comfort zone. Always turning to the left. That's what we know about Inferno. Always turning to the left. 
except at two major demarcations. We turned right, right after we entered the walls of Dis, right before we came up on Ferranata, and we turned right, right before we got on the back of Garion and got flown down to the Eighth Circle of Fraud. And we said in both cases that we came to major demarcations, that the demarcation at Dis is huge because we've come through the sins of incontinence, lust, gluttony, avarice, and anger, the sins in which you can't control yourself. And we've now started to pass into other sins that are more willful, like heresy. Big division, turn right. And then we turned right, right before Garion, which is between violence and fraud. Again, big division. Virgil makes much out of that division up in the 11th canto. And it's a division that, of course, I can't hold to. Listen, I can't say that murder is not as severe as counterfeiting. That makes no sense in my brain. But for Dante, given his ethic, it's the way it goes. And this pull toward fraud causes us to turn right before major division. Is Dante here then emphasizing the left, the usual way, because there's not as big a demarcation between the eighth and ninth circles. Virgil seems to believe that they both exhibit a kind of fraud. One, a kind of fraud that doesn't break trust bonds. And now what we're coming to, a fraud that does break trust bonds. It's that way this is so called out to us to remind us that the demarcation between the eighth and the ninth circles is not as great as between other circles where there is that little momentary turn to the right. The passage goes on. About a crossbow shot farther on, we came to the next one, the next giant, a little more bestial and grandiose. Now, let's talk about this for just a minute. A crossbow shot, a medieval crossbow shot, not a modern crossbow, but a medieval crossbow shot, is mm, about 350 meters, about 380 yards. A pretty fair distance to walk, 350 meters. That's, a, what, a third of a kilometer? I mean, you know, not so bad to walk. They are clearly crossing territory here. But what I find so interesting is that as we come down into the pits of hell and as we go down in Inferno, the precision of the measurements gets stronger. Back in the circle of the schismatics, we learned that it was 22 miles around for them to walk, reheal, and then get chopped up again. 22 miles. Then we went down a level into the next Malabolger or the next evil pouch of fraud, and we found it was 11 miles around for the falsifiers. We also had careful delineations for the height of Nimrod's. 30 grand hand spans. We also had all bits about Frisians standing on top of each other. And last time, if you remember, I went all insane about trying to figure out exactly how tall Nimrod could possibly be. And here's yet another 
fairly precise measurement, a crossbow shot. I mean, listen, it's not precise for modern scientific work, but it's precise for the Middle Ages and in how they understood distance and length. It's interesting that the farther down we go in hell, the more precise the measurements get. I don't have an answer for this. I'm not, I'm not going to come to any grand conclusion here. I'm going to point it out as a point of reference inside of Inferno and say that it's so interesting that Dante feels the need, the desire, the want, the ability to become more precise as we get down toward the bottom of hell. Is that because Dante's vision is clarifying? It could be. Is that because his imaginative landscape is becoming more fixed? It could be. Is it because that by the time we've got down here, Dante has literally mapped the thing out and perhaps early on back in the dark wood or in the circle of the lustful or in limbo or the neutrals thought he hadn't really mapped the whole thing out yet maybe except francesca does make reference to a part of hell that is yet ahead of us maybe donny did know something about where he's heading but maybe the clarity of his vision's getting better or is there something about precision and the bottom is there something about the foundations of things i mean this very passage says that uh, antaeus is going to set us down on the foundation of all that sinful is there something about foundations that make things get increasingly precise no firm answer here. Lots of options for you to consider and maybe more that you could come up with on your own. Just interesting that the measurements get more precise the farther into Inferno we get. So let's stop and talk about who these giants are before we talk about the theological conundrum in the passage. There's three of them, and I just want to kind of delineate them for you. The main one in the passage is Ephialtes, or as it is in Greek, Ephialtes. This is a giant who is the son of Poseidon and Princess Ephemedia of Thessalonica. So a god and a mortal. He's actually got a brother, Otos, and uh, they form a kind of dastardly pair. You should know that in classical Greek, Ephialtes means nightmare. It's doubtful Dante would know that. And Otos, his brother, means insatiable. The two of them actually attempt to storm the home of the gods. They are gigantic creatures. They are so gigantic that they're able to pile mountains on top of each other. There are several stories of their heroic acts of piling mountains on top of each other, and the order that the mountains get piled on top of each other is different in the various stories. But they're trying to pile mountains on top of each other so they can penetrate the world of the gods. In Ephialtes' case, he wants Hera. He wants to capture Hera and and make her his well, wife. Wife seems too kind a word. His consort? Okay, how's that? This figure, Ephialtes, is in Virgil's Aeneid, but is very cursorily mentioned. Dante probably knows of this figure much for, from Stasius's Thebiad. And in the Thebiad, there is much more explained about his and his brother's feats of strength. There's a couple things that are strange about him in this text, and one is that he's got this belt that goes around him five times, or this chain that goes around him in five circles. You can imagine that five circles has caused a great deal of allegorical interpretation. 
why five? I mean, listen, it's true. Dante the Poet could have said the chain goes around him six times, three times, four times, one time. I mean, yeah, five. It's, you, you had to pick a number, especially with Dante. It can't be random. A lot of people think it indicates the final five circles of hell. That is the fourth through the ninth circle. And if you think about what that is, that would be avarice, anger, heresy, violence, fraud, and treachery. And indeed, this giant in attempting to penetrate the home of the gods is rather guilty of avarice, anger, heresy, violence, fraud, and treachery. So it could be that there is a reference to the final five circles of hell around him. And he kind of represents all of this bit from avarice down. We should also notice that he dared grand feats, Virgil says, when the giants struck fear into the gods. Remember I told you this same thing happens in the Genesis story of the Tower of Babel. God comes down, he sees the mortals building this tower, and God kind of freaks out at it. Let me read you that bit in Genesis 11. At verse 5, it starts, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, and that's the Tower of Babel that they're building, which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confound their languages so that they will not understand one another's speech. I mean, it's almost in the Genesis account as if God's afraid. And this is a defensive measure on God's part. Certainly, that would be a crossover from the biblical story to these titans who attempt to penetrate the home of the gods to, in this case, carry off Hera as his wife. And then these giants, these boys, get killed in various ways. In various stories, they get killed in various ways after they try to build mountains on top of mountains. Sounds like the Tower of Babel, right? Mountains on top of mountains to get there. Jove? So, Ephialtes went against Jove? Jove in this poem? I mean, we've already seen this once, right, with Capaneus attacking Jove. It's just so weird to hear the name Jove inside a Christian poem. We seem to be at such a place of shifting sands. The second, Briarius, oh, it's hard for me to say these names, sorry, sorry, it's the debt of having a classical Greek major. I majored in English and Greek as an undergrad, and so I know these terms from Greek, and it makes my mouth hurt to say them in modern English. But anyway, Briarius is this next giant that we see. Briarius is the child of Uranus and Gaia, that is, the child of the sky and the earth, if you want to put it in allegorical terms. Dante wants to see this figure. He says, if it's permissible, I'd like to see the mammoth Briarius. Why does he want to see this figure? Well, Briarius is one of at least three hecatoncheres, that is, multiple-armed and multiple-headed creatures. They're allies of the Titans. They, too, are giants. And in most tellings of it, they have, these characters, 50 heads and 100 arms. This figure, Briarius, 
Arius does appear in Virgil's Aeneid with his 50 heads and a hundred arms. Virgil has condensed the number of these characters essentially down to one. Dante probably doesn't know that. Virgil is picking up his story of Briarius from Homer's Iliad. Briarius is called by Hera, Poseidon, and Athena when they want to make war on Zeus. And they call up this giant with 50 heads and 100 arms, that ought to do it, to make war on Zeus. But when Briarius gets up to where Zeus lives, Briarius sees Zeus, is so overwhelmed with Zeus that Briarius sits down and worships Zeus, thus destroying the possible mutiny that Hera, Poseidon, and Athena are trying to foment. Dante doesn't really know that story from Homer. That's the story that Virgil would know that makes it into the Aeneid. And Virgil keeps him there with his 50 heads and 100 arms, which means the passage here is a giant joke on Virgil. But we'll get to that in a minute after we pass the last giant, Antaeus. Virgil says they're not going to go on to Briarius. Instead, they're just going to go on as far as Antaeus, and he's really close by. And Virgil says he speaks. He isn't bound. He'll set us down on the very foundations of all that's sinful. Dante knows of this figure, Antaeus, from Lucan's Pharsalia. Antaeus is the child of Poseidon and Gaia, Earth, so in this case, sea and earth. Antaeus lives out in the Libyan desert. Lucan claims that Antaeus did not take part in the Titan revolt. And in the Pharsalia, the claim is made that if Antaeus had taken part in the Titan revolt against the gods, the Titans would have won, hands down. It was only because Antaeus had other things to do or was busy (laughs) or was living out in the Libyan desert that he didn't take part in the general revolt. But if he had, then the Titans would have won. You may know also Antaeus got his power by standing on his mother, the earth. He had to be attached to the earth to have any strength. And when in the labors of Hercules, Hercules defeats Antaeus, it's by picking him up. He picks up Antaeus and of course his feet are then detached from the ground and suddenly Antaeus has no strength left and Hercules defeats him. This figure here curiously isn't bound and he can speak. Remember Nimrod spoke that weird language. Some of these giants, these titans don't seem to be able to speak, but Antaeus is not bound and he speaks, which leads us to a giant question. Why is he in hell? There's a big question for you. He wasn't part of the revolt against gods, the gods. Dante knows that from Lucan's Pharsalia. He's not bound the way Nimrod and the way Ephialtes is. Why is he here? Why why would he even be in hell at all? He didn't do anything wrong. (laughs) I guess he tried to 
beat Hercules, but, you know, come on. It's an interesting and ongoing question. Why isn't he bound? Why is he here? Why is he able to speak? Because he can. Many scholars have said that this leads Dante into a theological conundrum. And the theological conundrum is that these giants must have been created bad. And I've already discussed told you that you can't have a bad created thing. It's against Christian orthodoxy. God can't make a bad thing. God can only make good things because God is good. If he's here, then he must be intrinsically made bad. Listen, what's he doing here then? Uh, That's a difficult point, and it gets into difficult theology. And the difficult theology may be expressed in the passage. The fourth line of this passage that we're reading says, I don't know what sort of master craftsman did this to him, nor can I say, but he, this is Ephialtes, he was bound with his right arm behind him and his left in front. Are you kidding me? I don't know what sort of master craftsman did this to him, nor can I say, It's God, right? It has to be God. We're in a Christian poem. It can't be anything but God. Why does the poet feel the need to fudge the question of divine judgment on these figures who made war against the gods? We're in a weird spot here. Weird spot between classical and Christian learning. I'm telling you that 31st Canto is difficult because of these weird crosses, biblical figures, classical figures. But I can't tell you this much about it all. Isn't it interesting that these three figures, Ephialtus, Briarius, and then Antaeus, come from three different sources. They come from Statius's Thebiad, from Virgil's Aeneid, and from Lucan's Pharsalia. Isn't it interesting that here, toward the bottom of everything, we have three nodes of Dante's primary sources? The only thing we're missing here is Ovid. And believe me, we've had enough of it up to this point. Certainly, the three big epic and tragic, well, in Dante's world, tragic sources, the Aeneid, the Thebiad, and the Pharsalia, they're sitting right here at the bottom of everything. Dante would identify these three works as tragedies, even the Aeneid, because of its tone, because of its subject matter, because of its melancholic look at the world, even though it's about the founding of Rome. All of these for Dante would be grouped under the rubric of tragedy. Isn't it interesting that here, as we approach the bottom of things, we have three nodes of the major works that Dante cites. So, as I said, the joke is on Virgil. Dante wants to see Briarius, says, oh, I'd love to see that guy. Man, I want to experience that 50-headed, 100-armed guy with my own eyes. And Virgil says, the one you want to see, he's much further on and bound up in form, just like this one here, except that his face looks even more ferocious. Well, hey... Virgil once again corrects the Aeneid. He's not just like this one here. In the Aeneid, he is, in fact, one of these hecatoncares, these 50-headed, 100-armed things. Why does Virgil correct the Aeneid here? Is that another reversal? I mean, we've seen Virgil do this once with Manto, back with the fortune tellers, and correct the Aeneid. Here again, Virgil says, nah, 
<laughs> the one you want to see, like, you seen one, you've seen them all. They're giants, they all look alike, except, well, that guy's probably a little more ferocious. But, you know, I mean, big deal. What is going on there? Why is that set in there? Is it part of the reversal, both reversing the Aeneid and, let's say, reversing the tone? Because, actually, it's kind of funny. Oh, that guy, you know, he's on. It's like the rest of them. Let's not waste our time. It reminds me of the last time when Virgil said, let's not cast our words into the void. Are you kidding? What did you just do? You just talked to Nimrod, who you said can't understand anyone and no one can understand him. And then you turn back to the Pilgrim Dante and you say, oh, let's not cast our words into the void. Let's just move on. You just cast your words into the void, big boy. What are you up to? I think that there is a comic tone that enters into the 31st canto. A comic in, as in funny. I mean, there's a comic tonality that enters into it. I think that, in fact, if we look at the 31st canto across it, what we see is a kind of wild fusion of tragedy, comedy, romance, and epic. The four forms that Dante would really know. We see a kind of fusion of all of these forms, I could even argue failed comedy, failed romance, failed tragedy, and failed epic, but we probably have to go a little farther down this road in the 31st Canto to find out how they're all failed. Ephialtus shakes himself. Never has a rugged earthquake made a tower shake so hard as Ephialtus suddenly shook himself. Why did he shake himself? Did he shake himself because Virgil corrected the Aeneid? Did he shake himself because he thinks Virgil's lying? <laughs> what if Virgil's lying? What if he really does have 50 heads and 100 arms? And Virgil's just saying this to get the pilgrim on. <laughs> We've done enough tourist stuff in hell. Come on, you know, we don't need to stop at another saltwater taffy stand. I mean, is that why, why he shakes himself? It's unclear why this giant suddenly shakes so hard. Does he shake because he doesn't like being compared to other creatures? Is he unhappy that he's just been compared to Bright Arius and he doesn't like that comparison? He kind of wants to be special on his own, this Mr. Nightmare guy. It's not clear, and it's not filled in. And isn't it interesting that we're back to towers? I felt it shakes himself, and the metaphor is like an earthquake shakes a tower. See? Towers, giants, giants, towers, towers, giants, giants, towers. Dante is insistent on the illusion, insistent on the poetics, on the poetic language, on the metaphors, on the similes, insistent even after knowing what these things are, insistent to push it back to metaphor again and again. All I can say is that there is a great deal of literary shaking going on here. Crossings of biblical texts with classical texts, all sorts of classical texts included in here inside of Dante's geography, inside of Dante's fiction that he's creating. Remember my point that so many of the previous apocalypses, whether they be even Virgil's in the Aeneid or certainly some of the apocalypses of Christianity, like the apocalypse of Peter and the apocalypse of Paul, they didn't include all of this kind of material. This is not material about the damned. This is not warning shots about the damned. Oh, don't commit lust. You'll end up here. Don't commit gluttony. You'll end up like Chaco. Don't commit anger as a sin. You'll end up torn apart like Filippo Argenti. These are not warnings. This is narrative journey. 
Is that part of the crossing strategies here? I mean, there's just so much crisscrossing over each other. It's no wonder this poor giant shakes. He's in a shaky canto. Here's another question for you. Is anything really at stake here? I mean, Dante says, I've never feared death more than at this moment. The fear itself would have done me in, except I could still see his chains when he shakes himself. Is anything really at stake here? Don't we know that the pilgrim's journey is is deified, is divinely willed? Does Dante realize that nothing really could be at stake here? And so the joke is on the constant reversal, the reversal of moods, the reversal of tones, the reversal of attitudes. I mean, Dante's saying, man, I'd like to see Briarius. That sounds like a bad dude. And then this one giant shakes and it's like, oh my God, I'm scared to death. If you're scared to death at this guy, where do you see Briarius? Where Get a load of that guy with his 50 heads and 100 arms, if that's what he has, or if he's just like the rest of them, as Virgil says, but he's just more ferocious. Is the reversal of tone part of the ongoing strange set of reversals here? How can you be so brave as to want to see Briarius, and all of a sudden you're standing there quaking like a leaf? Listen, I'd be quaking like a leaf at this point in any direction, you know, you seemed all full of bravado. And then suddenly one of them shakes. You don't even know why. And you're scared to death. You've never been more afraid than at this moment. Never. Not with Garion. Not when Farinata stands up out of a tomb. That one would do me. Not when Farinata stands up out of a tomb. You've never. Not when those beasts met you on the hill. You've never been more afraid than at this moment. Interesting crisscrossing of tonalities, of modes, of moods, of attitudes, of literary genres, of classical sources, all muddled together. As I've told you, all bets are off in a liminal space. In any sort of liminal space, a threshold between worlds, all bets go off for both worlds. That's the thing that's so interesting. When the shaman enters the liminal space, all bets go off in the world beyond, the world of the spirits, the gods, the ancestors, whoever inhabits that world. And all bets go off in this world for the people left at the fire as the shaman dances around into his or her trance state. All bets go off. All rules get suspended in liminal spaces. Here in the 31st Canto, surely we see so many suspensions of the rules. Do I have to go back to that line? I don't know what sort of master craftsman did this to him. You don't? Yes, you do. You're Dante. Of course you do. You're the best Catholic that ever lived. Of course you know what master craftsman did this to him. And of course you know why. What are you doing with us? Why are you playing around with us? Unless, of course, again, this 31st Canto is a very weird, strange space in which the crisscrossing currents of Inferno themselves finally start running into each other head on, finally start mixing in strange ways before we hit the bottom of everything. Let's read it one more time. Canto 31 in my English translation, lines 82 through 111. So we went quite a ways along our journey, having now turned to the left. About a crossbow shot farther on, we found the next one, a little more bestial and grandiose. 
I don't know what sort of craftsman did this to him, nor can I say, but he was bound with his right arm behind him and his left out in front by a chain that held him tight around his neck, then went around the exposed part of him for five circles. This prideful one hoped to test out his strength against Jove on high, my guide said, so he's got his reward. Ephialtus is his name. He dared grand feats when the giants struck fear into the gods. The arms he moved back then can't be moved at all now. Then I to him, if it's permissible, I'd like to see the mammoth Briarius to experience him with my own eyes. At which he replied, you'll see Antaeus pretty close by. He speaks. He's at bound. He'll set us down on the very foundations of all that sinful. That one you want to see? He's much farther on and is bound up and formed just like this one here except that his face looks even more ferocious. Never has a rugged earthquake made a tower shake so hard as Ephialtus shook himself all of a sudden. I've never feared death more than at that moment. The fear itself would have done me in, except I could still see his chains. Well, I left the passage in a lot more of a mess than it actually exists. It's a difficult spot for sure, and I wanted to bring out all of the strangeness of it itself, because I love this 31st canto so much. Come back. we got Antaeus ahead of us. I mean, we're told he's going to set us down on the foundations of all that's sinful, so my gosh, we've got to be along for that ride. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, do those things, drop right down there on that Apple manual, you see a place to rate it, also get a place to write a review just a thank you there would be wonderful because thank you for being on this journey with me it's overwhelming two years it took us to get to this point if you're walking in real time and we're walking on i will see you on the next episode of walking with dante i'm mark scarborough see you then